we uh, have looked uh, quite a bit at this theme over chapter 18 and into 19 about the idea of becoming like a little child. And we're going to look at these two sections together to see how they tie together. And uh, we're not going to look at them uh, both independently, but together. And uh, But we have done a lot of surveying of what Jesus says are the prerequisites about coming into the kingdom of God. And that is set in very strong contrast to the this encounter that Jesus has with this rich young man. Uh, it's a personal encounter, and oftentimes th those personal encounters that we find in the Bible are, are, are so attractive to us. It has the idea of Jesus dealing one-on-one -on -one with a person's soul. Uh, that personal conversation. And uh, the same is true when it comes down to oftentimes when we're reading through the Gospels, as we did uh, back earlier on, a number of weeks back, where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Whatever other people are saying, who do you say that I am? And so it becomes a very uh, a personal transaction between you and Jesus. What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? It's, it's very individual. And we saw that um, uh, 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 earlier on where uh, Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Jesus deals individually with people. He knows us individually. That's why he's called the Good Shepherd because he knows us personally as if we were the only one in his flock. And so there, there is a, as it is with this young man, this rich young man, there's a personal transaction between he and Jesus. So it is with each one of us. And so he comes to Jesus with this question. He's very earnest. In fact, in Mark's gospel, it tells us that there came one running and kneeling before him. So it speaks of the intensity of this young man. And he comes with this question. At one level, it is a good question. At another level, it's not a good question, that there is within it quite a fatal flaw. And you see if you can identify what that fatal flaw is. It says, and, become, and behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to, to have eternal life? Now, we, our, our alarm bells should be going off uh, uh, right away when we see those words. What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? For this young man, it was not about God or God's grace, God's favor. It was about himself. That salvation was a matter of uh, a meritorious effort. What can I do? Am I doing enough? Have I done the right things to inherit eternal life? That's how he saw it. Not a gift to be received, but something to be earned. And so there is a, 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 a flaw in this question. Although any pastor or any Christian would love to have somebody come up to them and at least even ask that. Uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, we pray that people would be provoked 
more and more that God would be working in hearts and minds to get them to start to ask those questions, even if it has uh, such bad theology in it. At least it's a jumping off point. And it was a jumping off point for Jesus. It provided further discussion, even though Jesus uh, was going to uh, show that the thrust of his question was wrong. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus is saying that why, in, in another gospel, it says, uh, uh, there is only one good, and that is God. Jesus was identifying himself with God himself. But also, he was saying that the that goodness, that true goodness, is found in God and in his word. In the commandments that he already knew. And that's why Jesus uh, says here, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. In other words, he's, he's saying uh, that, that, uh, that this is the way in which uh, God has, has, as it were, set down. Uh, he, he's not saying that it's a... He, he's saying it's a way of salvation. He's simply saying to the man, that if this is the, your starting point, if this is, where you, this is where you must go 100%. And so he's, as it were, seem, seemingly setting up the young person. He said to him, what, which ones? And Jesus said to him, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus knew the kind of person he was dealing with. Oftentimes, if it was someone who was looking to the law, looking to what one must do to get into heaven, then he used the law against them. He used the law like a scalpel, like, like a surgeon would open someone up to cut. Not to heal, but to cut, to expose. And that's really what the law was given for, as Paul tells us in Romans 5. That the law was added that sin might increase. In other, not that God wants people to sin, but that the law, when it's preached, and shown for what it really, what the real spirit of the law is, it exposes sin within people. And Paul is saying in Romans, that's what it was given for. Not as a ladder to get to heaven, as this person was seeking to do. And it's, it's embedded in this very question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus is basically thinking, I know who I'm dealing with here. I know the, the mentality. I've seen it growing up. I've seen it my whole life. This person is not celebrating the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God. He's consumed with himself. And so in response, Jesus uses the law to expose his complete uh, inability. And so Jesus lists off... Uh, uh, some from the second table of the law. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And 
the young man then replies. He says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Again, just as there was a tragic flaw in his question, there is a tragic flaw in his answer, isn't there? All these I have kept. He wasn't there for Jesus' class in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, if you uh, have anger in your heart, if you hate in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. If you look upon a woman to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. In other words, it all comes back for God to the heart. That it's not just outward things. I haven't physically done any of these things. And, and the young man was sincere. When he did a quick review of his life, he could say, I was a good young man growing up. I always honored my parents. I always told the truth. I was always particular about these things. I never committed adultery. I never murdered. I never did any of these things. But as sincere and passionate as he was, he was still dealing outwardly in the things that were outside of himself. Where the Bible tells us that whereas man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. How easy it is, isn't it, for us to do up the outside. Jesus talked about the Pharisees being like that. That outside they looked like beautiful tombs, whitewashed and, and wonderful to look at, but inside full of dead men's bones. The Bible is always driving at the heart. Proverbs begins, My son, give me your heart. He doesn't say, Get good marks in school, or keep your nose clean, or be well behaved, all these sorts of things. Give me your heart, because that's where it begins. Jesus says, Out of the heart proceed idolatry and adultery and all of these things. The Bible, from beginning to end, is all about the heart. And this was the fatal flaw in this young person's uh, thinking. Thinking that he had kept all of these things. Because he was only dealing at a very, very superficial level. And, and so uh, Jesus knows this. He knows whom he is dealing with. He knows the kind of person he is dealing with. And it doesn't take Jesus very long to move on to, uh, to something else in a very practical way. All these things have I kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and come and follow me. Again, Jesus was, he knew that because everything operated out of the heart, he knew that this man, his treasure, lay not with God, but with his, 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 his treasure. His, his, his passion, his idol was his money. And that not only had he broken the, the second table of the law, without realizing it, but he, he 
violated the very first commandment. When God made a demand on his life here, the, the Son of God saying to him, go and sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. He went away sad because his money was his idol. The first commandment, of course, says, you shall have no other gods before me. This young man would have absolutely abhorred the thought that he fell down before idols, that he served any other god besides Jehovah. He would have celebrated the fact that he was someone who just served the God of Israel alone. But the Bible makes clear to us that idolatry can occur even sitting in church. The, the Bible, the, that idolatry can occur even when outwardly we look very respectable and religious. And that's the way it was for this uh, young man. He prided himself in many outward things, not focusing on the fact that God really wanted his heart, that God had exclusive claim upon his heart, and tells us that he went away sad because he was very rich. He had great possessions. He, he is the complete opposite, then, of the man that we spoke about back in chapter 13. You remember the man who came up upon the, the, uh, the great treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Why? Because he realized, the end of the parable is saying, he realizes that, that the highest good that he could possibly know was citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Having his sins forgiven. Of knowing the grace of God and holding on to that. Everything else in his life that jeopardizes that must go. And so he sells all he has that he might possess that great treasure that is in the field. He sees the worth of it. He sees it in terms of the, the bigger picture. That whatever he has to sell in life goes beyond or, or, or it doesn't rather doesn't begin to compare with that treasure that he's just found in the field. But this man is the opposite. What Jesus was telling in parable form is now being lived out in a real way with this man. He does not see the value of the person standing before him. He doesn't see that the kingdom of God is right there in his very presence. And he goes away dejected and sad because he was very rich. And so Jesus goes on. He says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this person full of great zeal and confidence, all these I have kept, 
What do I still lack? How can I possibly improve upon where I have come, come to already in my life? And not getting the answer he wanted from Jesus goes away uh, dejected. J.C. Ryle said with, with all his wishes and desires after eternal life, there was one thing that he loved better than his soul, and that was his money. And he could not stand the test. Sometimes that's what it is, friends. It's just that one thing. We can go so far with God, but there's that one thing that when God puts his finger on it, we can go no further. And for this man, it was his money. For others, it's their reputation. For others, it's their pleasure or wanting to have those controls over their lives. I'll come and go from church when I want. I want the freedom to be able to be flexible and make those decisions in my life that I want. So I don't want to get too, you know, tied to church. I want to be able to be a free spirit, as it were. And so sometimes these things come in between a person and their God. And Jesus was really not giving this person through the commandments a ladder to get into heaven, but he was using the law the way it was meant to be used, to cut, to open, to expose the sin that is really there. And this person was not able to take that next step with Jesus. He goes away sad, for he, he was a man of great possessions. This is what happens when things get a grip on, uh, upon us. It's not that we possess them, it's that they possess us. Begins to show how really helpless we are. Jesus showed how helpless this man was. That he was, he was now no longer in the driver's seat in his life. He was no longer a free agent. But in the very presence of God, in the very presence of life itself, he was still bound by his own wealth. If you've seen, if you remember that wonderful scene in uh, The Lord of the Rings and in the, the books as well, with it, Gollum is falling into Mount Doom. And there's that look on his face. Uh, he has the ring now as he's going down into the lava. And there's this look on his face of great glee. And he, he's holding the ring. And you see, at least in the, in the movie version, he, there he is, this big smile on his face. He has the ring, and he's just about to hit the lava. And even as he's going into the lava, he still has this look of glee on his face because he possesses the ring. And really, what Tolkien is saying is that the ring possessed him. The ring possessed him. Jesus said the same. He says, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light. You see that? Loved darkness. That's where their heart was. Because their deeds were evil. And it was played out so often within the, the, the leadership of the Jewish people, the Pharisees, who you remember a number of months ago we talked about how they tried to get around. They, they used the loophole so that they didn't have to give their money to their parents. They could keep the money for themselves because they said, oh, it's dedicated to God. Why did they do that? 
You see, they were, Jesus was saying right there, they weren't honoring their father and mother, though they would have said they were. They were dishonoring their father and mother. They did not love their father and mother. They loved their money more, so they used this loophole. This is Korban. This is dedicated to God, so I can't use it for poor old mom and dad. Jesus had no pretensions about where these people stood. He wasn't letting this man off and thinking he had kept the, 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 you know, you shall honor your father and mother, you shall not commit adultery, all these things. He didn't have to pursue that. One fell swoop with this request to go and sell all you had exposed the idols in his heart. Judas was the same. He loved money. He helped himself to the, to the money purse. And yet here was a man who heard all Jesus' sermons and saw all of his miracles. That's, that's stunning, isn't it? Isn't that an incredible thing? This man spent such intimate time with Jesus, even from all accounts going out and preaching the kingdom of God and driving out demons and all the rest of it. Undiscernible, unrecognizable from all the other disciples as being a true disciple. And yet there was an idol there. There was a love really for money rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the time came, that was born out. Just as it was with this young man. And so uh, we see uh, the, uh, the way in which... Um, these things take hold of people. And Jesus says there, verse 23, Truly I say to you, with, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not saying that rich people haven't entered the kingdom of heaven. There were lots of rich people in the Bible. Joseph of Arimathea, Solomon, King David. The list goes on. Many, many rich people. And many rich people today will enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus is saying typically... People of great wealth find joy and contentment in what they've done and what they have. And Jesus is giving a general rule here that it's difficult for people of wealth who can buy anything and have anything through their money to really find a need for God. And so he says... Only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. He emphasizes it by saying, again, I tell you, it's easy for a camel. The, the largest common animal that was used in that day, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it says when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. How can, uh, how can, uh, who then can be saved? See, there was this understanding that if you were rich and wealthy, you were blessed by God. That was a kind of a thinking that went back in the people of God uh, many generations. That it was a sign of God's favor to you if you had lots of land, and children, and wealth, and so on and so forth. And... Uh, they, they, the, the, the disciples themselves concluded 
that if this man could not be saved, this rich man, this man of great prosperity, who then could be saved? It took a long time for the disciples to get into the way of thinking of Jesus. I mean, back in the last section, here were these children coming to Jesus, and He was blessing them, and He was showing that they were a model for the kingdom of heaven. Because children know that left to themselves, they can't do anything. They can't provide for themselves. They would be dead if they were had to fend for themselves. You've seen these horrible pictures of human smugglers down on the Mexican the American border, dropping children over the wall, and one child crying out to the, even to the smugglers that brought the child in, please help, don't leave, and so on. It was a sad, sad picture. But that's a child, a childlike spirit. A spirit of dependence. And it says that the disciples rebuked the people. They were trying to turn away the people that Jesus was trying to receive, and they were shocked when Jesus was turning away people that they thought should have gotten a one-way ticket into the kingdom of heaven. It was completely upside down. The disciples were saying to the children, Shoo! Saying to the rich man, Oh, well, you don't have a year, you're wealthy. I mean, and if you can't be saved, who can be saved? They just had it completely upside down, didn't they? And yet, Jesus gives them the very answer. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. How then does one come into the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus tells us in, in John's Gospel in chapter 3. Look at what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He goes on. Do not marvel, in verse 7, that I said to you, you must be born again. There is the, that's the question. With us, it is impossible. But with God, it is possible. Now, whether we are wealthy and we are possessed by riches or we're possessed by reputation or we're possessed by some other sin that is keeping us away from God, the only way in which we are able to really see that and come clean and become like little children is by being born again. That's why the Bible says you must be born again. And if this is something that is in your life, if you feel that this is a struggle for you, that you're holding the kingdom of God at bay, you're holding Jesus at bay, there's something in your life. And the Bible is clear about that, friends. For many, many people that Jesus spoke to, there was that one thing that kept them holding Jesus at bay. They wouldn't submit. They wouldn't humble themselves. For this man, it was his wealth. Where do we go? What do we do? We must go to God. That's why he lavishly 
displays His blessing upon these children. It tells us in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, it opens it up for us a little bit more there. Mark 10, 16. It said, and he took them up in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. That's the, the, the difference in the perspective. What happens when we humble ourselves and become like little children and admit our complete dependence upon God? Say, Lord, I have got no righteousness of my own. I have no hope in preserving myself, keeping myself. Where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves under the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ who takes us in His arms. What a beautiful picture. Wrapping them in His arms and putting His hand on their head and blessing them. You see, friends, in, that, in those very actions, Jesus is signing off on the heart and the mind that is required in order to possess eternal life. Coming and seeing our absolute need. And so, He gives us that assurance. With man, it is impossible. With you this morning, it is impossible. And let me uh, uh, emphasize to you this morning that this is the most important question that you'll ever answer. I hope you're, it's one you're wrestling with if you've not come to it yet. How am I saved? How do I get right with God? How do I come into the kingdom of God? Jesus says, with man these things are impossible. But with God all things are possible. God has done something. He has opened a way through the death of His Son. He opened up His flesh. And just like the law opened up our hearts to expose the sin... The cross opened up the flesh of Jesus to expose God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. And it is there that we must go. Has He not done a great work on the cross? Has God not made every provision for us? That's why Jesus had to die. Because with you it is impossible. You cannot save yourself. No amount of trying to keep the law because you cannot do it. Jesus, Jesus in one fell swoop with one sentence, go and sell all you have and come and follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. He went away sad because he was very rich. Jesus in one instant exposed that this man was possessed. Friends, God is calling us to something here. He's calling us to, to come and surrender our hearts and our lives to him. He's not calling us to death. He's calling us to life. That's why he's saying to this man, he wasn't coming and saying to him, just throw everything away. No, he says, and you will have treasure in heaven. You see, if we only see things in a very short perspective, we will never give those things up. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's that's the modern worldly philosophy. It's always been the philosophy of man. But Jesus shows something else here. He says, he speaks of heaven. He speaks of another dimension. 
A place from which he has come. A place of which he speaks with such natural affection and with such familiarity about his Father in heaven and the glory that he shared with him. He ascended back to heaven publicly before his disciples. Others have come from heaven, like Moses and Elijah. There's been this continual corridor between heaven and earth. And so Jesus has come to speak of this great reality beyond this life. And he says, he's not telling us just to throw everything away. Everything away. He's saying, come that you may gain life. As we were hearing on Tuesday night when Pat was here, she was quoting the words of Jesus, I have not, the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to in abundance. And he goes on to show the disciples. Peter said in verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything to follow you. What shall we have? You see, Peter Although he and the disciples were kind of mixed up in other areas, yet they still got it in this way. They followed Jesus. They left their fishing cooperative. If, if someone left, left their fishing boat, a fishing boat and a license and all the rest of it today would fetch you up between $800,000 and a million dollars here on Prince Edward Island. To leave all that on the shore and go and follow this person, Jesus, would have been an extraordinary work. And yet this is what the disciples did. And what they said was true. We have left all to follow you. They were different from the rich young ruler. And yet Jesus promises them. Look at verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters, father or mother or children or lands for my sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You see? This is what he's calling us to. Not less, but more. But to first identify that we cannot obtain the kingdom of heaven. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven through the commandments, through the things that we do, but absolute surrender to the one who fulfilled it for us. He kept the law on your behalf. And he was punished for the things that you did. And he says, now all are yours. Give me your heart. What terms? What glory? What love? Does that not put everything in perspective for us to say, Lord, all is yours. Forsaking all. Forsaking my efforts. Leaving it all behind. I come and surrender to you. Your righteousness. Your death on the cross. All for my sake. And it's that that the angels are singing about tonight. Right? This, this morning, rather. This very moment. They're crying back and forth to one another as they fly. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He, his love is inexplicable. His glory is beyond words. Because they see it for what it really is. And they're not made partakers like we are. They, they are they're observers of it. Will you not then this morning see yourself in the company of those little children who, who come with nothing, who are absolutely dependent, and yet it is those that Jesus wraps his arms around 
puts his hand on their head and blesses them. And he fights to bring them in. He fights his own disciples to bring them in and to hug them and to love them. Just as the, the devil is trying to keep you from that blessing this morning. Jesus had to rebuke his disciples. And there is a great spiritual battle that goes on even today to keep you from those arms, to keep you from that blessing, to keep you from that salvation. Jesus is, his arms are outstretched to love you and to bless you with the riches of his forgiveness and his love. And they came and they were sent away with a blessing. And I pray that that's, that would be the case for you. I was speaking to a man this week who was converted by this sermon. Not my sermon, but this text. Many years ago. And I pray that perhaps if you were not turned or converted or a believer when you came in here this morning, or if you were if you're still holding God at arm's length because of some sin in your life that you don't want to give up. That control that you don't want to give up. The uncertainty that you don't want to embrace. That today this might be the place where you too begin. And that you can look back and say, that was the place I turned to the Lord in total surrender as well. well let's pray.